Session 1. The Great Schism 1054 AD by Steve Statin. So, how did I get to the top of this? Well, 1981, July 31st, uh, I was baptized, and the week beforehand it was about ripping away from the Catholic faith. I was the first of about 45 cousins in one side to leave the Catholic Church. I've been a lay minister. I had given ashes to people and their heads on Ash Wednesday and communion. I was pretty far along, deeply entrenched in the Catholic faith. It was actually a great experience. I did not leave Catholicism because it weirded me out or messed me up or had bad experiences with hypocrisy. It was a fantastic family mm. all around. They're very authentic to this day in their faith and from a Catholic perspective, that is. And But I left because it was not meeting the need. Yeah. And I was studying the Bible that summer and studying with Marty Fuquay, who did baptize me. But afterwards, I thought, I don't have the answers to so many questions that people have. Over the next two years, I just devoured anything I could get on church history. By the time I'd been a Christian for four years, 1986, I had written a 100-page outline called From Jerusalem to Rome and Back. I love the history of the church. I just wanted to know where it all went awry and so forth. And I just became the church nerd, church historian, church geek, answer those kind of questions. Then um, I went back to school to get a master's. I'd been an engineer before I went to the ministry, but this, I wanted to get a master's in New Testament theology from Wheaton College. And in the middle of that program, something really big happened. And uh, we had the church in Indianapolis break away, uh, which for those who've been around, you know that story. And it was a complex story. It was not a, a black and white either or thing. It had a lot of nuances to it. But I'd led that church for two years from 88 to 90. And the next day after this drama had taken place, uh, Trisha and I, John Nancy Mandel, and Todd Saad got in a van and went down to Indianapolis to figure out what had happened and what could, how could we salvage it. I stayed in contact with some of the people that broke away. We did salvage people to stay in our fellowship. There was a lot of lessons learned. But in the middle of that first week being down there, I had to go back to school. And I was supposed to decide what my master's thesis would be on that week. And I talked to a professor. I told him what had happened with the church. And I said, I'm going to do a thesis on unity in the early church. Mm. So from the moment the apostles started to pass away, uh, the next 90 years where we had the first draft of the New Testament canon. I wanted to figure out how the church stayed unified, what was unity, and see if there's some things I could learn. And so I did that, and I just found out, kind of, that church history and church conflict are about the same thing. <laughs> and so, in 2010, I saw that we were not getting advanced enough in church conflict training in our fellowship, this is my opinion. <clears throat> being in Chicago, and I decided to go for a master's in conflict management at Lipscomb, and I finished that, and then towards the end of the program, we realized, oh, we want to do this, my wife and I, go into congregational health, conflict management kind of things full-time, so the Chicago Church helped us launch January the 1st, 2014, and so this is what Trish and I do together. She's also a teacher, but we together do church engagements. So that gives you a little bit of background uh, to us. We're going to look at three events today. We're going to zero in on the date associated with the event, even though we know that sometimes dates are rough and sometimes too much emphasis is put on a particular date, but it becomes a gathering point to have a really good discussion. 
One of the things that's important as a consultant is legacies. If things are not dealt with in a proper way, they leave a legacy. If things are dealt with in a proper way, they leave a legacy. A legacy is not something to be afraid of. A legacy is to be understood and then managed. But there's three legacy moments in church history that become important, and I would say even more important this year. In the history of Christianity, there's 500 epochs or periods where major changes and transformations take place. Uh, there are some scholars that believe that that will always be a cyclical pattern within the church. I don't necessarily think so because the information age is going to start speeding things up, in my opinion. But the Great West, East-West Schism of 1054, our first subject here this morning, uh, is something that I wrote a long paper on and is something that fascinates me. I've presented on it before. I think you're going to learn some things that you've never heard about it before. Maybe you've actually never even heard about the event. That will even be more fun. There's a lot of takeaways from this story. The Reformation, we all know about that, but this year, on October 31st, will be the 500th anniversary of the date that Martin Luther, Luther's theses were nailed to the castle Wittenberg door. And I was there two years ago in October. Mm. They were already ramping up the city, getting ready for what's now happening this year. Tons of books, magazine articles are coming out this year, have come out since last year, getting ready for this. It's a reflective moment in church history. The second lesson you hear this morning is going to tell you something I guarantee you, you've never heard before. How do I know that? Because I presented it two years ago in Zurich, and Doug and Vicki Jacoby were in the crowd, and they had never heard wow. <laughs> There you go. I mean, if you can do that to Doug, you've got something really good. <laughs> and so uh, I hope that won't be a need for you. And then we're going to look at the Restoration Movement, which is not on a 500-year cycle, but it's our heritage. We're going to look, starting at a particular period, but over a period, we're going to, in that situation, we're going to go over, you know, quite a few years, nearly 200 years of developments that become part of our legacy as a historical fellowship. Now, this is a group project, and there will be times to interact throughout today, but I want to read a paragraph. Uh-huh. It's called The Parable of the Blind Man and the Elephant. I'm sure a lot of you have heard this before. It was six men of Endestan, too learning much inclined, who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind. That each by observation might satisfy his mind. First approached the elephant and happened to fall against this broad and sturdy side. At once began to bawl. God bless me, but the elephant is very like a wall. The second feeling the tusk cried, Oh, what do we have here? So very round and smooth and sharp. To me it's mighty clear. This wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. The third approached the animal and happened to take the squirming trunk within his hands and boldly up the spake. I see, quote he, the elephant is very like a snake. The fourth reached out an eager hand and felt about his knee. What most this wondrous beast is like is mighty plain, quote he. Tis clear enough the elephant is very like a tree. <laughs> The fifth who chanced to touch the ear said, Ain't the blindest man can tell what this resembles most. Deny the facts who can. This marvel of an elephant is very much like a fan. The sixth no sooner had begun about to beast, beast to grow than seizing on the swinging tail. It failed within his scope. I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a rope. And so these men of Indostan disputed loud and long, and 
each in his own opinion, exceeding stiff and strong. Though each were partly in the right, and all were in the wrong. That's how I feel a lot about how people perceive church history. We perceive church history through the field of view that we choose to look at. And there are some major misconceptions about church history that I hope we can get to. A couple of the most important ones today. Because I don't just sit down and read a church history book and say, oh, this is church history. I think this is church history through the view of this or this Presbyterian or whatever. It very much clouds how the story is told. Matter of fact, there's no way you can get around it. I won't be able to get completely around it no matter how much I try. The thing that I can do is say I can bring multiple disciplines to the discussion and since we will interact with it together, that leaves the room for multiple fields of view. The Great Schism of 1054 and its legacy. The schism developed along a number of different lines. It was quite a long, long period to develop. It involved geography, language, and culture. And what was the language that the Christian faith was born into? What was the most prominent language that Christian faith Greek, Greek, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, within about 200 years, that was no longer going to be the case. Mm. It was going from that point in time to start to have a rival, which would be the Latin language. And then that would become one of the bases of vision. It's a long backstory we have here. Uh, I'm going to tell you about one of the first evidences that we have some tension. In 190 AD, the overseer, the lead elder of Rome, by that time they would have a more prominent elder who would be called bishop. He uh, was kind of an intolerant guy, wanted to convince everybody that he knew the day that Easter should be celebrated. Hmm. And that everybody needed to submit to the Church of Rome's point of view on this. Now here's the backstory a little bit for this. Rome is really important. There's no way to get around it. Without Christianity recognizing the significance of Rome, it became vulnerable. Here's why. Even when Paul went to Rome, he did so partly because Jesus told him to. He went further. He wanted to talk to the Caesar. He appealed to the Caesar. But if a religion was going to be recognized as legal, it had to have its headquarters in Rome. And so the Christians were always trying to have a strong presence in Rome. Around 136 to 144 AD, there was a power struggle when there was a need to have a new overseer after one had died. The heretics would literally converge upon Rome, hoping that one of their guys would get in to lead the way. Marcion and Valentinus are the two prominent ones who failed. They got unmasked for who they were, but they started their rival versions of Christianity Christianity right in Rome. You had to, you had to have your, your base there to even have a chance to survive. So over time, people would make sure that the Church of Rome was highly intact. Justin Martyr was there. He was the strongest teacher in Rome. Irenaeus from Lyon, France, would go there to defend the church, protect the church, and others. So the church in the West had to get strong because of this connection to the empire. Well, in 191, Victor is taking this role very high. You know, like, I'm the guy. 
I'm the new guy. You know, that's where he's, he's getting to his head. And he makes this decision, and basically, my note says here that he cut ties with the church and we on this issue. Well, thank goodness for Irenaeus. Irenaeus is kind of the history, of the hero of church history of the second century. And he was the person who gave us our first sense of what a New Testament canon would be. More than anybody else, he defined what we call a rule of faith, which is very similar to the creeds of the early church. But this is the core truth of Christianity, and he used it as a weapon against heresy. And he used it as a way to identify what books ought to go into our New Testament. And he's a real champion in that way. But he rebuked Victor. Victor had to back down. And so, you know, guys at the top sometimes could be wrong, and that's what we find out in the story. So, an example that I'm going to give you here of the tensions east and west is around 10 years later in 200 AD. You have Clements and Tertullian. These are contemporaries. By the way, one's in Alexandria, and one of them is in Carthage. So they're really on the northern side of Africa, and they both may, may be African uh, descent race. We certainly know Tertullian was. Um, but Clement, you know, his view of attire and things was so much based on the Greek culture. But he had the adorned man God, like the lions, with a beard and endowed him as an attribute of manhood, with a hairy chest, sign of strength and rule. Ever noticed how people, especially many Greek preachers, pastors, ministers, and patriarchs have these long beards? It's deeply embedded in Eastern thinking. It goes way back before the time of Christ. So now we have a cultural component that becomes part of embedded into the thinking of what manhood is about. We have good biblical basis for this. Matter of fact, you might be able to build a biblical basis for the alternative, that long hair is for women. There's lots of ways you can go with this. Okay. Also in the East, uh, Clements, they love mysteries. They like not having an exact answer. They like contemplation, learning. They'll mix scripture with you know, Socrates, mm-hmm. and for the good and for the bad. And so that is just the nature of the East. And if you read Clement's stuff, you're going to really like him. When he talks about love and brotherhood and fellowship, you go, this is man, this godly man. But then you'll say, you'll read other things he writes, and you'll say, maybe you're speculating. It's like mental gymnastics. That's just <laughs> the nature of the culture of the East. Tertullian. Uh, he had a completely different attitude about learning. Paul had been in Athens and had in his interviews with the philosopher became acquainted with that human wisdom which pretends to know the truth. He basically is known for this statement. What indeed has Athens to do with Jerusalem? What concord is there between the academy and the church? He diminished outside learning. And so did the church in the West over time. Church in the West started to lose their bilingual abilities, no longer was Greek, the universal language. That meant that they lost learning for centuries until the Renaissance of some of the really good things that philosophers wrote, Plato and Socrates and others. They had a very secluded mindset. And so Tertullian was of the mindset of the Bible only. Now, there's a strength in that, but there's also and ignorance with that too. Since the Bible gets lost out of its context with all the other historical documents, so you 
It's hard to read parts of the Bible without knowing the history around the Bible and being developed. So you see this tension, which lays the foundation that we have today. Centuries long, nine centuries long, this battle was, and it ultimately culminated with in the middle of the church service, July of 1054. It was the first worship war in churches. We had a lot of worship wars nowadays, especially in uh, the Church of Christ traditions, mm-hmm. evangelical Christians, over music, styles, use of instruments, or whatever. Uh, this was one of the issues that came up. And it is the first big divide in church history. It's so deeply impacted church history <coughs> that you'll see centuries later almost the same behaviors act out multiple times. And I would even say even into our own lifetimes. But you never saw anything like it for a millennia before. But then after that, we see it quite a bit. Um, It's almost a funny story. So if you feel like you want to laugh at some of the weird things that I'll be reading, um, feel free to do so. The event happened in the Church of the Holy Wisdom or Hagia Sophia in Constantinople. And uh, how many of you remember being at an open forum in February, March, April 2003? God bless the rest of you. (laughs) You know, those events are so firmly embedded in who I am to this day. Hmm. Uh, The one that I remember is one I said we will not let happen. It happened anyway. The minister decided to, I was an elder at the time, said, I'm going to do it anyway. And it went from 7.45 in the evening till 2.50 in the morning. And it seared the congregation and left a lance and had a massive impact, long beyond any perspectives or disputes, what it did to people's souls. And really, the lance that we're going to talk about here is one that stayed with Christianity to the in his present to this day. Pope Leo the Ninth. He sent delegates straight out, straight down the patriarch of Constantinople. Now it's important to think patriarch is connection to the concept of father, right? Yeah. Okay? And Pope is a concept of father. And both of those are terms to design uh, to designate the highest ranking person over a family of churches. The difference being is that Pope Leo thought he was the father over all of the churches. And the patriarch thought he was father of the Eastern churches only. He did not reject the concept of a father of the Western churches. Conception. The first official true pope, as we do know it, would be Pope Gregory, or often known as Gregory the Great. He had a love for music. And eventually, uh, certain music style developed called chants. He gets credit for They're called the Gregorian chants. He had nothing to do with the Gregorian chants. They named him after him. That particular pope, the churches of the East respected and loved a lot. And Gregory would try to persuade them to come under him to see it like he's at the top. He did it through persuasion and through trying to do it through a relationship. They always felt respected. They never came under the view that he is their most holy father. But the church that's stronger, the East and West, in about 600 AD, 590 to 604, they were tight, much more tight, because Gregory didn't push things too far. Leo 
is a different makeup altogether. He is so deeply offended with the patriarch, Marcos Aurelius. And uh, he, matter of fact, in this period of time, they created a fake document associated with Constantine the Emperor that basically said whoever the leader of Rome is is the leader over all the church. Well, first of all, there's no reference to it throughout all those centuries. It just all of a sudden magically appears as an argument to break the patriarch Michael into submission. And it seemed as disingenuous. Everybody, come on. Come on, this is anonymous. This is fabricated. And so that's the level of bad behavior that's starting to go on. And he wouldn't back down. So uh, Pope sent his enforcer, his tough guy. And this, this is the reputation he has. He's like the enforcer. He's going to take care of it. He's going to clean the baby up. He'll straighten up Michael. He'll do it. So an interesting thing happens is Cardinal Humbert gets on his journey. And let's talk about uh, Cerulius again. Uh, he made a big deal about things that the West didn't care about. The West had unleavened bread only for communion. Michael said, it doesn't matter whether it's leavened or unleavened. Once you have Christ, it doesn't matter. And so this is the nitpickiness by which East-West splits started to happen. The bread, the beard, the timing of the holy days. There were other things we'll talk about, but like the use of icons, art was very unique in the East to describe the events of the Bible or depict the characters of the Bible in a real unique look, a cartoon-like look. And it was offensive to the church in the West. Have you ever been offended by somebody's culture, but you can't actually say it's right or wrong, but he's alongside of you, you're just offended by it? I have been. There is some forms of art that I find so ghastly, and I just hate to even look at it. But I can't actually say it's, it's wrong. But I just know it must be the way that I was groomed, how I was raised, what I was shown. You know, my schooling, my life experience. And, I, and a mature person will say, but that's just me. That doesn't make it right or wrong. But an immature person will say, it's right or wrong. It's right because that's what I believe about, it, right? Okay, this is the kind of dynamics that are at play. And um, so Leo has sent Cardinal Humbert on a trip with a message and a seal. Hmm. And Pope Leo dies. Oh. While Humbert is on his way in the spring of 1054. And he gets there and Michael, the patriarch, will not meet with him. So, if somebody wants to meet with you, why would you not meet with them? I actually know, I think I know the answer to this. It, it goes back about 200 years. But why do you think you would not meet with somebody on the other side of an issue? What do you think the reasons you would not meet with somebody? Not true. The position's weak. What's that? The position's weak. Okay, your position's weak? Okay, that's a good reason not to meet with somebody. I better work on my position. 
Okay. Why, why else might you not meet with somebody? Yes. Uh, because you meet with them, you're acknowledging that they have an argument. Okay. That's good. You're acknowledging, you're, maybe you're acknowledging not only they have an argument, but you're acknowledging that they are a party. Right. So we're right. meeting with them to be reckoned with. Here. Okay. Yes. Okay, that's a good reason. They'll feel like they're going to listen. In conflict management, we teach there is some not worth it meetings to have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Similar to what we said here, but uh, you give them authority over your life and the party. Right. So by not acknowledging that, you give them that authority. <laughs> and, and really, that actually cuts to the reality of this situation. You, if you meet with them, you're giving them authority. And you're sharing authority and distributing between yourselves that an event that yeah, is going to eventually be famous uh, gets to be told by two parties. Hmm. And that's, that puts you at risk. Well, about 180 years before a meeting had taken place, and there was a charismatic kind of Martin Luther of the Eastern Church who bridged people together. And he was so charismatic that the Western Church didn't like it. He took positions against the Western Church. So they sent a messenger to the east and defrocked him of his position. So Michael was concerned that he would be defrocked in the minds of the Western Church and people in the east would start to recognize him. So you don't even want to have the one meeting if you are so locked in to your position. Matter of fact, he was antagonistic kind of a personality too. We just got to be straight about it. He would write letters to Leo and refer to him as a brother and refer to himself as a father. Mm. You know, basically, I'm the guy. You're just a brother. <laughs> it had a sort of flattering to it, so he's really playing mind games. You know, just really kind of some real immature behavior. Let's talk about some of these overt issues now. Make sure we get a look at them. We've already talked about culture. A little bit more about the Latin and Greek languages. In Greek, you can have coinciding thoughts. You can appreciate mystery. You can actually say, "I don't know the answer to that question." It's just and Latin language is so precise. There's a lot less variables of any given word in the Latin language compared to the Greek language. So in the Greek context of like baptism, salvation, and forgiveness of the Holy Spirit, these are coinciding realities that all go together. In the Latin language, it would sound like baptism causes the forgiveness of sins. In the Greek, God forgives of sins. God is the forgiver. Latin the baptism did, which is one of the reasons, in my opinion, that infant baptism came upon, came upon in the Greek thinking world first, is you can associate baptism with power, but baptism washes away sins. It's God who washes away sins in the, in the scriptural language. And Paul can deal, that's why Paul can mention one aspect of salvation in one passage, and another mention another. You are forgiven because you believe, you are forgiven because you repent, you are forgiven because you are baptized. They're all together true because they all are coinciding. You're not saying one thinking that the others didn't happen or not true. They all are intertwined. But in the Latin language, there's a cause-effect kind of dynamic. So, there's theological emphasis in Mary about the Holy Spirit, about the order of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Does the Spirit proceed from the Father or does he proceed from Father and the Son. That was a huge debate. There were creeds in all this time, major creeds, councils that would decide these things. And the last decision was in favor of the, the Western position 
that the Holy Spirit proceeded from the Father and the Son, and the Greeks said only from the Father. To this day, maybe right now, historians and theologians would say, yeah, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. But how much does it all matter? <laughs> Again, some of these things are mysteries, right? So, uh, worship styles. Okay, so this is huge. This has bearing today in a lot of our churches. If you are in the church in the West, you worship God in, with Latin masses. The liturgy is all in Latin. Everybody speaks Latin. They've lost Greek by that time. In the East, you worship God in your native tongue, Greek. However, top dogs on the Latin side said, all churches must worship God in Latin, even in the East. Well, that wasn't going to fly. So, in the West, the churches that had people moving to Italy, for instance, would try to have Greek services. They were banished. The services were not allowed to happen. So what they did in the East is they banished Latin masses from being able to happen. Okay, so... What the higher road would be to take is we want to have Latin masses. We want to have Greek masses. And then the languages of any immigrants need to have worship in their own tongue. That didn't happen. So this this was deeply, deeply offensive. And behind the story of July 16th, 1054, is one of the leading causes. Uh, the date of Easter, we mentioned before, um, one church wants to make sure it always lands on a Sunday. Uh, at one time, the Eastern Church, it didn't matter whether it ended on Sunday. But part of what is going on here is, and the dates have changed a few times because calendars have changed, and uh, formulas for determining in the East changed a few times as well. But mostly, they're more tied into a lunar calendar. Um, and so there's all different ways to formulate depending on which calendar you're going with. And it kind of actually gets complicated because one the official calendar over all the ancient world changes. I can't remember what century that was. It really confused the people that were trying to ca calculate these things, even to this day. Uh, the use of icons, which I mentioned. Now, one of the reasons it's controversial is when you have only one kind of art that has a cartoonish look to depict people and events of a sacred orientation. It looks like that's the only kind of acceptable art. And that became the only kind of art that was used in the Eastern Church. The Western Church thought, is this not idolatry? Are you not worship praying to these icons? Is that not idolatry? The Western Church was praying to saints, so they were hypocrites. Okay? But it raises a good question. And so that issue went back and forth throughout the councils. And again, Eastern Church was never going to give it up. Even if they lost their way in a council, they weren't going to back off. This is just part of their way. <clears throat> a good purpose of the icons was that people were ignorant. Mm -hmm. Illiterate is a better word. Okay. Maybe they were ignorant too, but they were illiterate. <laughs> uh, because this was a method. Art, statues, and all sorts of uh, creative works were used to tell the story of God's salvation history of the Bible. And as a matter of fact, plays were used a lot, mostly in the West, not the East, to depict the stories of Scripture. So that was a justification on their part. The Church of the East didn't lift up Mary to the same level of prominence that the West did, although they lifted her up quite a bit. The Lord's Supper they had a couple of different uh, nuances that were different. 
um, clergy and marriage. This was really, truly offensive in this century, <coughs> this, this uh, debate, this conflict. And they felt that the Western Church viewed marriage for clergy as almost as if it was immorality. Yeah. But frankly, there was a lot of immorality going on with the single yeah. clergy in the West. A lot. And then appearances, okay? Because the beards, these are, you know, real troubling for people. Because maybe you can relate, you know, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> we have some thoughts about this. See, here in the Church of Christ, we have Greeks among us. Amen. So, that's really what's, a lot of what's going on here. The, show, the showdown was that when uh, Leo died in Humbert, Berto had tried all these appointments for a couple of months. And it did not occur. He went into the church service during which mass was being celebrated and put the bull on top. Bull is like a letter, but an official letter. And it was a bull of excommunication. The tricky thing was is that the bull's seal had already been broken. So the question was, was this from Humbert or was this from Leo? To this day in church history, we don't know. We do know that both Leo and Humbert were extremely offended, but you could see Humbert getting torqued up, spending weeks and weeks and weeks trying to have these meetings and not happening. The seal is broken, and so he delivers a message of excommunication. And I'm going to read excerpts of it. Humber, Cardinal Bishop of the Holy Roman Church by the grace of God. The Holy Primary and Apostolic See of Rome, to which the care of all the churches most specifically pertains to a head, deign to make us ambassadors to this royal city for the sake of peace and the utility of the church. Let the glorious emperors, clergy, senate, and the people of the city of Constantinople, as well as the entire Catholic Church, Therefore know that we have since here both a great good, whence we greatly rejoice in the Lord, and the greatest evil, whence we lament and misery. For as far as the columns of the imperial power and its honored and wise citizens go, this city is most Christian and orthodox. But as far as Michael, who is called Patriarch, through an abuse of the term, and the backers of his foolishness are concerned. Innumerable tares of heresies are daily sown in its midst. Then the writer, I'm just giving you excerpts, cites famous heretics of the past and evokes the images in this letter. Like the Simoniacs, they sell the gift of God. Simon, the first Simon is in the book of Acts, who wanted to purchase powers that he saw the apostles. The sin of simony would be trying to secure a position in the church, and that had become an issue throughout time. Like the Valisians, they castrate their guests and promote them not only to the clergy, but to the episcopate. Like Arians, they rebaptize those already baptized in the name of the Holy Trinity, and especially Latins. Like Donatists, they claim that with the exception of the Greek church, the Church of Christ in baptism has perished from the world. Like the Nicolaitists, they allow and defend the carnal marriages of ministers of the sacred altar. Like Severians, they say that the law of Moses is a curse. And it goes on 
to list more and more heresies, some of which, as a historian, I have never heard of before, um, but they're important in the minds of Leo or Humber. For these errors and many others committed by them, Michael himself, though admonished by the letters of our Lord Pope Leo, contemptuously refused to repent. Furthermore, when we, the Pope's ambassadors, wanted to eliminate the causes of great evils in a reasonable way, he denied us his presence and conversation, forbid churches to Latin mass just as an earlier close to the churches of the Latins. Okay, but well here's the problem. In this letter is language from Humber. It's like telling that he refused to meet with us. Yeah. How did Leo? Yeah, how did Leo? This is why the seal was broken. So we can put in new information. Okay, so this didn't go over really well. And so Michael, in turn, called the Pope heretic. The Pope is now dead. Okay, this is the story, the event that finalized all sorts of stuff that had happened for centuries to split the church east and west. There were people east and west that tried to stitch it back together. There were private groups and meetings and people who tried to be peacemakers to make it all happen back together. And this went on for five centuries. And there was respect by lower level people saying, we should be back, we should be one, we should respect you. These are not divided, issues to divide over, but that became the sever of the east and the west church that have lasted to recent times. But also, all these bad behaviors, the immaturity, the pettiness, the slavery, the exaggeration, focusing on things that really don't matter, making things that are mysterious, you know, cardinal dogma, became the pattern in church history. The door was open to really bad behavior. Here's the rest of the story. And 1965, 900 years, 911 years later, the head of the Church of the East and, our, and the Pope met together to denounce the decisions on both sides back in the day. Not very well publicized, not really known to most people. Uh, both sides did try to make it real known, but it really lost its impact. It would have been nice if it happened, you know, 910 years ago. <laughs> but it did it. But that is the official stance of the there have been no gestures ever since. But the real damage of this moment uh, was that it fed into the behaviors of the Reformation 500 years ago. We saw the same pettiness, the same behaviors, the same immaturity, and the same outcomes, which has led us to a situation where today, depending on what you call a denomination or not, is at least 10,000, it could be as many as 44,000 denominations. And we've seen, maybe even have participated in some of the pettiness. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so that's part of the legacy that we have today, which is why we're here this morning, to evaluate the legacy of the church. And so I'd like to have a talk right now with us. What did, what did we hear in this story that we want to take with us to do different in the future? Let's talk. Yes, in the far back. End of session one.